Thomas Munzer was installed as the evangelical preacher at the Lutheran Church in the small town of Allstadt, nobody could have predicted how things would progress over the next two years. By the time everything was settled, thousands would be dead and wounded in one of the most violent uprisings in Europe. Munzer wasn't alone. Many people were ready for revolution. There were revolutionaries in the Black Forest, Bavaria, Thuringia, and Swabia. There were even nobles who supported the revolutionary cause. Even though he wasn't alone in his appeal for revolution, Munzer was unique in his mixing of theology with the revolutionary call, a powerfully toxic amalgamation of teachings that he perfected while preaching in Allstadt. His preaching left the commoners believing they were doing God's work even as they pillaged and murdered those who stood against them. I'm Mike Yakely. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a discussion on the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. So, in 1522, uh, people were really getting tired of the excesses of the rich and powerful. Uh, Revolution was in the air. Compared to love in the air. (laughs) Love is in the air. Uh, There was a revolution in Spain, the revolt of the Comuneros, which was a revolt in Castile against Charles V. Uh, there were characters like Franz von Sickingen, uh, who proclaimed himself to be a sort of military-style Robin Hood, uh, attacking the powerful on the behalf of the weak, but he always somehow made a lot of money in the process. There's a lot going on at the same time here, so we're going to use this episode to not as much focus on all those, but just look at a biography of Thomas Munzer in such a way that it, it would shape his... Ability to be able to lead so many people towards a disastrous end. Yeah, this is sort of that. That this is sort of a missing link. <laughs> this is a, a period of Munzer's life that really goes into that period in typical Lutheran discussions. You might talk about him and uh, uh, when he's there with Luther and Wittenberg and the and the Zwickau prophets, and then you have suddenly uh, the peasants revolt. So sun- this is that time period between 1522 and 1524, 1525. Right. About. So uh, in 15, in episode 30, we talked about Thomas Munzer and the the Zwickau prophets and being run out of Wittenberg with and the Prague Luther, Manifesto and the Prague Manifesto. So let's summarize that. The Prague Manifesto, just why does it capture the attention so well as it has an apocalyptic end of the world vision to it. And he's going to be the one that's going to lead the people through this because he trusts the Holy Spirit has been poured into him and that he is the perfection of the first man able to lead the people back to the glory land. He says he can communicate directly with God. He doesn't Uh, need a priest uh, or the the Bible or even the Bible. Right. Uh, he's been given the task, so he has this com- direct communication with God, and he's been given the task to lead the elect toward a new Pentecost. And his idea of having direct access to God, maybe initially people were hearing that as, well, we all have the scriptures now. No longer do we need the priest or the Pope to tell us what the scriptures say. As baptized children of God, we all have the scriptures. So some people were initially kind of drawn into that egalitarian reading of the scriptures that he proposed. But in fact, it wasn't just about reading the scriptures. He believed he had God directly talking to him. And he claims that while he is only the first, all of the elect will soon be able to hear God speak directly once they truly have faith. Right now, they only have the beginnings of faith, but soon they'll truly have faith. Just like him. And he says, this this is a living revelation that's far superior to the revelation in the Bible, which he considers to be just, the Bible is dead words that priests throw to believers as bread is thrown to dogs. Now, so, 
Munzer shows up again in April 1523 in Alstedt. Just so he had been in Alstedt, he had been driven out of Alstedt. He's in Prague. He's in no, he was in he was in Zwickau. Zwickau. And then he went to Wittenberg. Oh no, he was in Zwickau. Then he went to Prague, and then he shows up in Wittenberg, and then was in Alstedt where he started in the very first place. No. Oh, okay. No, no, Zwickau was where he started in the first place, and then after that he goes to uh, Alstedt. And it's just this yes, small... right. In 1520, he was the preacher in the town of Zwickau. Okay. Right. And so... Uh... <laughs> See, if you at home are confused, I get confused too. <laughs> so uh... so we've got April 1523. He's in Alstedt, a small village of about 600 people, 120 kilometers, 75 miles southeast of Wittenberg. Now, through the support of the Salmanetz family, which is an influential evangelical family... Munzer's given the position of the preacher at St. John's Church in, in Ulster. This little tiny city. I, I mean, this is, this is barely a village. And as the political leader of the region, Frederick the Wise, has the right to appoint the preacher at St. John's. Uh, last episode, uh, we were talking about the Swabian Articles. The first article was the right for the local community to call their pastor. Well, they didn't have that right. And St. John's did not have that right, but... They, they did, did anyways. They did it anyways. They went, the city council never did tell, uh, uh, Frederick that they were calling, uh, a Munzer to be their preacher. They just went and did it. Now, it's unclear what exactly, whether they just ignored him or they forgot, but anyway, he didn't know. So, uh, almost immediately, Munzer starts saying mass in German, which draws huge crowds to the small, the small town. Luther's not doing that yet. No. No, this is, Munzer is the first one to have the German mass in, in Germany. Now, people were enthralled, not only by the fact that they could understand the worship service in their own language, but Munzer's apocalyptic teachings. He's talking about the end of the world and the great revelation of how it's going to happen, and how he's going to help the people navigate through this end of the world. So he, he's got like 2,000 people. There are records that he had 2,000 people traveling back in those days when it was difficult to travel. So the city of Every Alstead, Sunday. Has six, the small village, only has 600 people that live in it. But 2,000 people are coming on Sundays to hear him preach. Right. This is like one of the first mega churches. This is, I mean, he's a big deal there in Alstead. He's the draw into the community. Reminds me of a, a friend of mine who was called to a church in rural Nebraska. And the average Sunday attendance at this church was larger than the town that the church was in. Really? Because it drew from the surrounding villages uh, and uh, farm fields so much. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's basically the same the thing. The whole county had just one stoplight. It was just not even a... The whole a, county? Yeah, it wasn't a, a red, a yellow... It was just a flashing red? Just a flashing red. Wow. That's, that's in the middle of nowhere. But people came to hear the gospel. Well, people in Austria weren't coming to hear the gospel. They were coming to hear how to make it through life at the end of the world. And that's yeah. what Thomas Munzer was describing. Right, right. So, you know, uh, so let's talk about his, you his, get popular like that. You make some enemies, right? It's a really first, uh, really con, uh, was a big concern for the Catholic count Ernest von Mansfield, who was, uh, responsible for that one, some responsibility for a nearby area. And this, it, by the way, Mansfield is the family that are in charge of the area where Luther grew up in, in Eisleben. And at his death, the controversy that brought Luther to Eisleben was a dispute among the Mansfeld families. Okay, because Mon- now uh, Ernest von Mansfeld, he's uh, he's Catholic, mm-hmm. 
And Mansfield is not very far from Allstadt. It's a little, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's like the local big city. It's a bigger city that's not too far away. And he's working hard to keep people away from Allstadt, keep people away from going to, to see. Uh, now, Munster. so Munster writes to the Count and threatens him saying, don't grab or the old coat may tear. I will deal with you a thousand times more drastically than Luther did with the Pope. So Luther, when Luther dealt with the Pope, he always worked with words. Munzer here, uh, there's an undercurrent of violence and and what now he didn't come out and say it, but what we'll see is that what he's talking about is he's willing to use violence where Luther never. Now was. the Catholics weren't the only ones who were concerned with Munzer and his teachings. Luther asked to have Munzer sent to Wittenberg to have his teachings examined. And Munzer refuses because he says he's too busy doing God's work. And all I can't that. go to a trial. I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in 1523, Munzer gets married to a former nun, and in 1524, he publishes his first German order of worship so that other preachers could institute these changes in their community. Now, now Luther wouldn't publish his first German worship for another three years, uh, 1527. So Munzer is way ahead of the curve here. Yeah, so Luther is kind of leaving some space for the gospel to bring about change in the community and the people asking and desiring for this change. While Munzer is going to be forward of any change. And he's driving it. He's yeah. driving it. And, and he's, he thinks he has the confidence to drive this kind of change regardless of what people are asking for because he has the direct line from God. So things uh, ex- escalated pretty quickly. Uh, in the spring of 1524, some of Munzer's followers burned down a small chapel in Mollerbach uh, after he encouraged his flock to take action against the simulated faith of the false church of the ungodly. Quote, false church of the ungodly. He's referencing a Catholic church. So he um, is bringing physical violence. And this could kind of go back a little bit to Andreas Karlstadt in the fall of 1521 in Wittenberg before, and in 1522 before Luther comes back from the Wartburg. And Luther challenges those that were bringing about change in Wittenberg by breaking statues and demolishing stained glass, by reminding the people that change in the church is going to come about through the gospel being preached and changing hearts. Well, Munster's not waiting for that. He says, let's burn it down. Yeah, burn down the, you know, burn down the chapel. This, this because chapel. he thinks in this chapel are fake Christians. Right. People and who are just pretending to be Christian through their actions, but truly in their hearts, they are just simulating. And he claims that this particular chapel is a quote-unquote house of idolatry uh, where the Virgin Mary is being worshipped. Uh, and that's because Mary had a reputation in that for that particular chapel uh, of performing miracles. And so, so it's like, you know, he's saying, well, you know, let's burn that place down. And, and so the actual burning of the chapel was organized by a Bund of 30 men. So B-U-N-D is a German word that describes an alliance or an association of like-minded people. Think of the word bond, B-O-N-D, the bonds that we hold together. Um, in America, a Bund is known because the, the German, um, American Bund Society in the 1930s was the German Society for the Nazi Party in America. And it was the gathering of like-minded people that would lead parades. There was even a um, uh, in Madison Square Garden or somewhere in New York City, a gathering of thousands of people celebrating their German heritage and, and calling for the welcoming of Hitler. Oh, okay. So a Bund is a term that has in it not just, say, a collegium of people, but it has a little bit of a, a military tone to it as well. A Bund is, um, you could think of it almost like a militia. Maybe. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, I was trying to understand this Bund, and, and as I was reading up on it, it was obvious it was not exactly just an association. It wasn't just a simple, like, I don't know. It's not like the, the Rotary Lodge Club. Or, or the, the Rotary. Elks. Yeah, it's not like that. There's something more to this, and I... I, I, I'm glad you gave that little bit of background because I, I, that, that makes a lot more sense. So, so they burn down this, this Bund, uh, burns down this chapel and the, the chapel is owned. It's the person who's responsible for it is the abbess. Who's uh, the head of the local nunnery. Right. And, and so she's, she's the legal owner and she's pretty upset about this. So she, she goes to Duke John of Saxony, uh, to, to complain. So Duke John is a, a new character for us. He now, is, he's going to play a big role going forward. And right? so we want to introduce a little bit about who Duke John of Saxony is. He is Frederick the Wise's brother. Frederick the Wise is childless. And so Duke John is going to be the one at the death of Frederick the Wise who will be the elector of Saxony. He will be one of seven people in Europe who have the privilege of electing the Holy Roman Emperor to his office. He is known in history as John the Steadfast because he remained strong and steadfast with the evangelical reforms that his brother Frederick had begun to bring about. Uh, he rules uh, Saxony from 1525 to 1532. Uh, he develops a small called League, which is a military alliance of like-minded nobles uh, to provide mutual defense and encouragement uh, for even Lutheran nobles. Um, he is also, along with Frederick the Wise, a patrilineal descendant of Elizabeth II. For those of you who have been watching The Crown on TV, or maybe you watched uh, uh, Victoria on PBS recently. Uh, so Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, is a descendant of John the Steadfast's fourth son. Okay. Uh, uh, is that Ernest? The Saxe-Coburg line. Okay, okay. And, and so uh, they're of the House of Wetton, and they're one of the oldest families in Europe, and John uh, of Saxony is the one that this abbess appeals to. And the reason she appeals to him is late 1524, Frederick the Wise is gaining um, illness. He's getting older. Um, he's really not the actor in Saxony anymore. It's more going to be the work of Duke John. Okay, okay. So Duke John orders the leadership of Alstead to find and punish the perpetrators within 14 days. So although the electoral commissioner and the town mayor and the town council all agreed to obey the duke, when the electoral commissioner reported back to the duke, 20 days later, nothing had happened. Part of the commissioner's response to the duke was a plea to reduce the severity of the punishment. Essentially, we will start to look for them if you make the punishment less. Yeah, and so he goes... And here's why you should reduce it. Here's why you should reduce it. First, nobody was hurt. Uh, the citizens uh, are rallying around Munster and this group, this Bund, uh, who burned down the chapel. And then the third one was that the commissioner is worried about his life, uh, saying that his life will be at risk if there's really if the punishments are too severe. So you already, you know, again, you get a real feel for this is becoming violent. This is these guys are really threatening. The duke doesn't change his position, but there's not much that's really done in history about it. Uh, the electoral commissioner's report to the duke reports that a member of the town council was arrested in connection to the burning of the chapel. Uh, but that's about it. That's about it. Alstadt as a city. Uh, recognizes that Munzer is pulling the strings, not the city and not the duke. So the council, after the after the the uh, councilman gets arrested, uh, the council of Olstadt sends a letter to Duke John, claiming that the burning of the chapel was justified. 
The council complained that they were being unjustly taxed to support a godless ministry like this monastery and convent that the abbess owned. They pleaded with the duke to no longer defend, quote-unquote, the ungodly. And then, again, you know, the, the duke really didn't do anything. He they was... want the duke, essentially, to defend only the righteous and leave those who this group would view as unrighteous as uh, powerless. Yeah. And be uh, able to be destroyed. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. I mean, it's horrible. You know, so... Now, as much as Duke John is an evangelical leader, and he's going to ensure that the Lutheran political position is strong in the Holy Roman Empire, he's not going to abandon his responsibility to all the people in his land, right. even those who would identify as Catholic. Right, right. So up until this point, all the discussion is going back and forth between the council and uh, the, the secular authorities and Allstadt and the Duke. And Munzer is essentially just saying, let's have Munzer come to Wittenberg. And Munzer saying, no, I'm not going to Wittenberg. And Munzer sort of staying in the background. And right, he's got this request from Luther saying, come to Wittenberg. And Munzer saying, no, I'm busy. Uh, and so Luther's staying in the back. I mean, Munzer's staying in the background. After the arrest of the town councilman and the push for more arrests, the people of Austria became angry with the local authorities. They don't become angry with Munzer. They become angry with the local authorities. But Munzer, what he does is he starts, he starts encouraging the, the local folks, the local townspeople to take up arms. So on June 13th, 1524, a large group of armed citizens led by the Boons stood all night in a vigil until the commissioner capitulated and released the town councilman who had been arrested. This is when Frederick the Wise gets involved. So um, though he is ill and, and struggling, on June 27th, he ordered the town council to move swiftly against all the offenders. Now, he doesn't do this by arriving in Allstadt. Um, Duke John has been doing all of this. Essentially, he's asking for the authority of the his brother's title yeah. to now bring about these changes. Yeah, so uh, Elector Frederick also ordered a hearing to determine if the teachings of Munster and the other Allstadt preachers was, quote-unquote, of God. Munster and his Bund saw the elector's openness to a hearing as a sign that maybe God was on their side. They're going to be given a chance to make their position. Right. And so they, they, uh, they expanded the Bund to include followers from all the surround, from many of the surrounding villages and the countryside. And then they began doing military exercises. So now the lines get drawn. Yeah. So well, speaking of lines getting drawn, um, I, there's really no let's, good transition. <laughs> let's just have our beer break. <laughs> let's, let's, let's create a line here and we'll just take a break here for beer. Uh, today's beer is from Frankenmuth Brewery. Last time we, we had the oldest brewery in Germany. Today we have the oldest microbrewery and Michigan's original craft brewery, um, offering award-winning ales and lagers since 1862. So in 1862, uh, John Folliers and his cousin William Nost and Martin Hubish. Hubish, thank you. Uh, built and opened the Frankenmuth Brewery just north of uh, the Frankenmuth, I guess, where the where the brewery is today. Uh, and since then, the brewery has operated under many names: Cass River Brewery, the Geyer Brothers Brewing Company. But in the 1980s, it settled on the name Frankenmuth Brewery. So uh, they they talk about this today. Our gold medal tap room is open, and they talk about all that. Um, but the 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 this we're today we're enjoying this batch sixty nine American IPA, which is a beer. It, this is an, a gold medal a winning uh, uh, award winning beer that they've produced. Michigan's two thousand fifteen World Expo of Beer Competition gold medal winner for the best IPA. Something interesting about Frankenmuth Brewery is in their logo is a dachshund. 
Uh, Frankie has been featured on their beer labels, advertisements, and marketing materials dating back to the 1930s. He's 85 years old. That's old in dog years. It's like 600. <laughs> and the history of Frankie originated with one of the brewer's early owners, John Geyer. So, uh, you know, right now, they're, uh, Frankie was their his top dog, and so he put him in, in ads and, and everything else. And to this day, you, every time you look at a Frankenmuth brewery, you got this little Dotson there. So last week, we were, uh, last episode, we were talking about the Vian Stefaner Brewery uh, being attached to the Technical University in Munich and being able to use new techniques and, and new abilities to craft beer. Uh, Frankenmuth is also... Um, not just sitting on its laurels as uh, the oldest microbrewery in America since 1862. Uh, Steven uh, Buschka joined the brewery in 2014 to support the company's rich uh, German brewing tradition. So he has a quite a uh, quite a pedigree here. He uh, he worked for he was head brewmaster for Bell's, which is a great uh, also when it was back in the Kalamazoo Brewing Company. Uh, 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 Potassi. Potassi Brewing Company, Oso Brewing Company. So he he's he's got quite like I said quite a pedigree, especially that Bell's that one of the top breweries. You put that in your resume, you get hired someplace else. I think so. It's a darn good. And Unless this is you, a, you this know is, why you left. This is this is a good beer though. It this is. is I, I'm, so uh, when we talk about these IPAs, and we've talked about this a few times in the past, it's easy to make IPAs that are a little bit harsh. You know, a little bit rough on 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 the flavors and. The, you know, some some folks like that. You know, uh, and I I like I like that to a limited degree, but I, I don't want to have that every day. These American IPAs and this one in particular is a little bit, just a little bit lighter. So uh, it's a floral aroma, dry hop for a subtle bite, and uh, pleasant notes of citrus and pine. Yeah, so it's uh, I can taste the. I always have trouble tasting the pine. I never taste pine. I think it's also because you, you choose the IPA as the second beer sometimes in our recording sessions. I think I do. We typically record two two sessions at a time. And for some reason, I always end up with the, the IPA being the second one. We need crackers or something in between. We, we, yeah, we need to clear our palate. So this is this is a good beer, though. I'm, I'm really... In, this is another beer that I'm enjoying so much. Uh, so... Uh, there we go. Back 69, American IPA. In the summer of 1524... Getting back to the growing unrest that's happening in Germany, uh, the attention in Germany had moved from Luther to Munzer. Luther had urged the Saxon princes to bring Munzer to Wittenberg for an examination. He's really still seeing this as a theological issue. Yeah, Munzer, Munzer actually sort of ramps up the theological side, and he's starting to publish treaties there in Allstadt. Treatises, yeah. Treatises, I'm sorry, treatises. Uh, and Allstadt. then Luther condemned Munzer by calling him satanic, since he would not agree to be examined. Uh, remember when Luther was talking about the Zwickau prophets and how to test the spirits. Uh, Munzer essentially is a spirit that resists being tested, so he must be afraid of something. It must be Satan. Yeah, yeah. So so the dukes, uh, so the Saxon princes, Duke John and his son, decide to see what what is going on. For so themselves. they visit, uh, Ju- July 13th, 1524, Duke John and his son, the Crown Prince John Frederick, the Magnanimous, it will be later his name, a few others arrived in Allstadt to hear Munzer's teachings. So Munzer uh, chose to preach on Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is the dream of a statue made of a gold head, a silver chest, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet made up of a mixture of clay and iron. And in apocalyptic writings, even today, a lot of people will go back to this writing and try to determine um, 
which part of the statue is a, which society. So, you know, people have looked at, say, the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and that when you have run through from top to bottom and each of these have been shattered, then the end will come. And the right. thought is you can use the shattering of each of these societies as a measure of timeline towards when the end of the world is arriving. So Munzer uses this. And I, I don't know if this is something that was done over and over before him, but he's... Uh, or he's he, certainly doing it. He's certainly doing it. And so in his sermon, he claims that the, that the, the era of the Holy Roman Empire, which is this era right there. This is that, that period that began, and I think we talked about it, it began with Charlemagne in about 800 AD when you had the quote-unquote Holy Roman Empire. Voltaire once said it's neither holy nor Roman, but that's what it is. It's the Holy Roman Empire. And it's a mixture of both the church and the state. And uh, and it's this this era, what Munzer is saying, is that the mixture of the church and the state is the mixture of the... Uh, the the steel and the clay feet, and that this is the the, the because it's the legs of iron and the feet, um, the mix of clay, iron and and, and clay. And so he's feet. saying we're right near the end because you've already been with the the gold head, the silver chest, the belly thighs of bronze. They've all gone, and they are in the bellies of history. And now we're at that last moment with this clay feet. That's a mixture of the church and state. That is the Holy Roman Empire. We're at a moment. When the world's about to come to an end. This yeah. is apocalyptic end of the world stuff. And Thomas Munzer is letting the people know that he's speaking for God when he says, Therefore, my dearest regents, referring to now Duke John and Crown Prince John Frederick, attain your knowledge directly from the mouth of God. Do not be seduced by your hypocritical priests who restrain you with their false talk about God's goodness and patience. Who is that false priest he's talking about oh, right it's there? It's Luther. It's Luther. And he's saying, get your knowledge directly from the word of God, uh, from That's, the mouth of God, that, which is Munzer. me, Thomas Munzer. <laughs> so he's providing a little dig at Luther, and, and he's and proclaiming himself as, as the mouth of God, which is really kind of bold. <laughs> Just kind of. <laughs> so he goes on to say, the rock torn from the mountain without the use of hands has become large. The poor lay people and peasants have focused on it better than you have. Indeed, God be praised, it has become so large that other lords or neighbors would be driven off by their own people if they wanted to persecute you for defending the gospel. That I know for sure. So the poor have an understanding of the gospel, which has become the mountain. They think the gospel is the mountain that's going to overthrow the current order. And what he's also saying there is Duke John and the crown prince should get on board or risk standing against God himself. There's an avalanche coming. Yeah. The rock torn from the mountain without the use of hands has become large. There's an avalanche. And the poor lay people and the peasants, it's time. It's time. So, amazingly, threatening the princes wasn't enough. He didn't stop there. He keeps going. He goes on to declare himself the new Daniel brought by God to bridge the gap between the faithful peasants and the faithful leadership. So in this role as the new Daniel, he has a new message. First, is he's saying that Luther is totally wrong to rely on Romans 13 for the role of government. Now, that what that says is uh, Paul in Romans 13 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established. By God. And the correct reading of Scripture... According then, to Munzer. Yeah, Munzer would say, is to rely on the words of Christ in Matthew ten thirty four. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, 
but a sword. You know, Mike, as we were preparing for this, I found it interesting that this tension between let everyone be subject to the authorities and Jesus saying, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword is the same um, kind of tension that is brought up in the novel, The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, uh, Martin Scorsese made it into a movie with William Defoe. Yeah. But there's this imagery of the temptation of Christ upon the cross is Christ, you aren't there to be in service to all people by dying here. You've come to be the sword that should come off this cross and now tear down all of society. And and this is kind of the challenge always for social justice and change. Does it come about through revolt or does it come about uh, through the law and maintaining of order and yet the gospel slowly through the working of the Holy Spirit calling, gathering, enlightening people? Uh, yeah. This tension that Munzer is bringing up uh, is brought up then in The Last Temptation of Christ, that controversial movie from about 30 years ago. Yeah, this, this is fascinating stuff. So so then he goes through and he outlines the purpose of the sword. And I'm going to quote Munzer here. He says, What shall one do with the sword? Nothing else than removing and separating the evil ones who impede the gospel. So, so, he's, so the sword is there as an agent of the gospel, not as the agent of law and order. Yeah. So that's so he's saying he's twisting things so that violence becomes the the the, the avalanche of the gospel. Wow. So, so Munzer is advocating for a theocracy with himself as the religious leader who will give the direction, and that he is motivating the people by uh, kind of melding together words, an amalgamation of church and state that is led by him. Yeah. So. Now, we don't know, there's no record on how the Duke reacted or how the Crown Prince reacted. Uh, but uh, it seems like they wanted Munzer to be interrogated. And, and the reason we say that is that the, right after the Duke left, okay, so they, Munzer gives this great, this great, <laughs> huge sermon. I'm not going to say great sermon, but he gives this sermon. And the Duke listens to it and he gets in this, his carriage and off he goes. And Munzer writes a letter that same day, right after the, the Duke left. And he writes a letter to the Duke. And it sounds like he's addressing a discussion he had with the Duke. There's after. a part of the phone conversation that we don't get to hear. Right. and but what, He says, I shall not shun the light. I want to be interrogated because of the horrible offense against the elect. But I will not agree to be interrogated only in Wittenberg. I want Romans, Turks, heathen involved, for I'm addressing all of the foolish Christendom and totally rebuking it. So Munzer was never interrogated in Wittenberg. He, you know, he's, and it sounds sort of like the the prince said, "Listen, you know, you've got these ideas. We understand what you're saying now. It's time for you to be interrogated." And and because at Wittenberg is where Luther is at, and Luther and Bugenhagen and the other collegium of the professors at Wittenberg are being used as the the lens of authority to say what is good evangelical practice and what is poor evangelical practice. And John the Steadfast is going to essentially, if Luther says you're bad, you're bad. Yeah. But yeah. Munzer is not going to let himself uh, be interrogated in Wittenberg. So instead, what ends up happening is the Duke decided to hold a hearing in Weimar. So in Weimar, this is Duke John's main home. Um, Wittenberg is historically the center of Saxony, but Frederick and his brother John and the Crown Prince they don't really live in Wittenberg. They they live in Weimar. Oh, okay, okay. And and so there the hearing takes place. And just before the hearing, uh, Luther released letter to the princes of Saxony concerning the rebellious spirit. So in this letter, Luther advocates for removing Munzer and banishing him from the country. And uh, Luther's letter seems to have some influence. Right. So 
all of what happens is is they have this hearing in Weimar, and and the city council shows up, and I think the I, city council of Allstadt, yeah, the city council of Allstadt, and along with Munzer and a bunch of other, they all sort of show up in Allstadt, and everybody sort of says, oh, not me, no, 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 I, I, I you know, we were just following Munzer. Yeah, All I, of Munzer's followers portrayed him as seducing them with his oratory so that they're innocent because they were only seduced by his uh, great rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, the Duke follows Luther's guidance and he banishes Munzer from Saxony. Munzer didn't wait, though. Within two weeks of the hearing, he suddenly leaves Allstadt, leaving his wife and his child behind, and he ended up in Mulhausen, out of Saxony and Thuringia, um, about 50 miles southwest of Allstadt. So, the medieval world hadn't heard the last of Thomas Munzer. Uh, in many ways, his teachings were in line with the spirit of the times. The peasantry, they were excited about the changes that were being brought about by Luther and the Reformation, but they were unwilling to wait for the work of the Spirit. This idea that Munzer had that the avalanche of the gospel was going to bring about a radical change, and that they could speed that change through arming themselves? Yeah, they, they wanted that change, and they want it now. Uh, and they're ready to take matters into their own hands. And Thomas Munzer, with his unique apocalyptic vision, giving that sense of how the world is coming to an end, and the peasants could be led through this end of the world and be victorious on the other side of it, and a new creation would come out of it. They would be the elect. They would follow Munzer as the first Adam back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah. So we're going to get back to Munzer and his leadership of the peasants as things continue to wrap up and ramp up into the the full blown peasants' revolt. Uh, but first, our next episode, we're going to be getting into Luther's response in this critical period. We've talked a little bit about his admonition to peace. Now things are ramping up, things are getting more violent, and Luther's going to have a response to that. And and so we'll we'll be going into that. So uh, that's our I next episode. This, you know, just real quick, this is an exciting time of seeing evangelical reforms in the church. We had that episode with Chris Mowers as we were looking at the liturgy. Uh, we have Luther returning back to the Warburg for the Invocavit sermons and talking about how the gospel brings about change. And now we've got uh, Duke John, who's in 1525, can become uh, the elector of Saxony and bring about the institutional changes in the society for the Reformation. It's really this idea that an idea that someone could write on a page like Luther does could suddenly have this uh, ripple of influence through every level of society, from the lords and the knights to the peasants, uh, to the bishops and the cardinals, to the priests. At every level of society, uh, Luther is bringing about a change that it's, it's, I can't imagine him expected doing this. So, and one of, you know, as you talk about that, one of the things that's just fascinating to me as I'm going through all of this is, is how these, these, these warring factions or these 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 factions that are are you know that might not be warring but these these adversarial factions continue to this day mm-hmm. how we can look out into our society and i think we have a particularly you know fragmented society today but but you know where we look for hope where we look for answer how we can cloak our our Political maneuverings in um, in the gospel, in the gospel, or you know this question of the evangelical party in America and what kind of influence they can do. How uh, Franklin Graham even um, went around uh, during the election of Trump with a, a 
tour bus telling people to vote for their values. There is this kind of, in America, this amazing mixture of civic society and religious society, um, and the bellicosity of language could lead people to try to think about how will this gospel change happen? Does it happen through force, um, or does it happen through... Uh, what does it mean to say, wait for the Holy Spirit? And and how do you know where that Holy Spirit's at work? All of this is still going on today. Yeah, th- these these issues that really, really first exploded onto the scene right after Luther uh, with, the, with the Reformation, when Luther introduced the Reformation in 1517, these issues are continuing to reverberate through today, and and it's yeah. just a fascinating, fascinating, and and it's good to hear these new perspectives, which Luther, oddly enough, I would say that Luther brings, although his words are 500 years old, to me, it's a new perspective that I haven't thought of before, and it's great to listen to and think about. And and one of the reasons we're talking about this modern context for what we're talking about from 1524 is. You can hear us talking about Thomas Munzer and his apocalyptic leadership, believing he's leading through people through the end of the world and, and kind of discount Thomas Munzer because you're like, oh, we would never fall to the trap of some sort of apocalyptic leader. But think about any leader that may be around in the world today that would describe your current way of life coming to an end. And the only way to make it through this time and navigate it and preserve your way of life is to follow him. If there's any leader that sort of pops themselves up as some sort of cult of care, uh, charisma that will help lead the people through the end of well, or collapse I, I, of something. You're, you're hearing echoes of Thomas Munzer. Yeah, and I, I would say that another interesting part about all this, I mean, is is the the utopian idea. Yes, the the utopian vision. That just on the other side of this battle. This just piece. yeah, just on the other side of this battle is utopia. And so, you know, it makes the battle worthwhile. And and we see this so even... So set aside any sort of value, because we just got to get through this battle. Yeah. And, and so we, we can sort of sense that, and like, uh, it's funny, the, we mentioned in the lab, two episodes ago, I think, we talked a little bit about how the communists would point to Thomas Munzer and say, ah, there, this is, this is the seeds of communism back yes. in German history. The, uh, and, and so you have this, that same sort of utopian vision and, and the communists recognized a, a, a brother, uh, an ideological brother within Munzer, this, this person who, who paints an, a, a utopia on the other side of the battle. And, and that, that is, you know, and we, the enemy isn't within, it's without, let's battle that enemy that's without, outside of us, defeat him. And then all of us who are the elect will make it through, or all of us who are the workers will make it through all of us who are, or uh, we we can put any, any number of groups that are, that are looking at things that way today, uh, that look at uh, place themselves as the innocents that are under attack. We just have to get through this attack. Uh, make people through some sort of violent action see the real danger that they're blind to, make it through that, um, and maybe it will take some force so people see the true uh, danger that we're in. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. And then you look at that, and you, you look at that in terms of Luther's response to that, which I have never heard. Yeah. I have never heard a modern, uh, a modern preacher or a modern leader of the religious movement come out and say, put things in the way Luther did, in his response to Munzer. Test the spirit. And, and, and his admonition, which is, this whole thing is, it's yeah. going to be interesting how, how this all rolls out 
over the next uh, few episodes. And we're going to find, a, as as Luther encourages the nobles to bring it under control, Whew, what happens when you unleash the dogs? Yeah, yeah. So let's sign off now. Uh, thanks to Josh. Thanks to St. Paul Lutheran. A recognition of our source materials. James Kittleson, uh, always a great resource, uh, which is Luther the Reformer. We also referenced uh, Scott Hendricks, uh, Martin Luther, the man and his vision. And Ma- Matthias Reidel has Thomas Munzer's Prague Manifesto, a case study in the secularization of the apocalypse. And then uh, Eric W. Grish, uh, Thomas Munzer, A Tragedy of Errors. That was actually a very good uh, resource for this particular episode. You can uh, contact us by email at graceontappodcast at gmail.com. Or catch us on graceontap-podcast.com. That's or, our website. That's our website. Or uh, Facebook, Grace on Tap Podcast. That'll, that'll find us too, what's going and on. And if you're interested in hosting a road trip, uh, let us know. Uh, we'll show up at a brewery near you. And uh, have a a few beer breaks, and then have a theological discussion about Luther and the times and our own times today. Perfect. Okay, well, uh, uh, also appreciate anything you can put onto iTunes. Always good to get the word out. Prost. Prost.